Hello, and welcome to the Strategica podcast from the Hoover Institution, analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us online at hoover.org forward slash Strategica. I'm your host, Troy Senek, and today we'll be examining the topic of the most recent issue of Strategica, the potential of terrorists to conduct large-scale attacks in the United States. And we are joined today by the author of one of the pieces in this issue, William S. Murray, Professor Emeritus of Military and Diplomatic History at The Ohio State University, uh, co-author of the forthcoming book, A Savage War, a Military History of the Civil War, and a member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. Wick, thanks for being with us. Uh, delighted to be uh, with you again. So, all right, here is the opening sentence of your piece at Strategica, quoting you here. Despite the enthusiasm of those media purveyors of horror stories about potential terrorist threats that could match the events of 9-11, it is unlikely, at least for the short term, that ISIS is capable of matching al-Qaeda's bloody success, close quote. All right, unlikely that ISIS could match something on the scale of 9-11. Why is that, Wick? Well, I think there are a couple things. One is that uh, the environment has changed in a massive uh, way from uh, before uh, 9-11. Uh, before 9-11, to be perfectly frank, uh, while terrorism uh, was something that, that uh, the government uh, um, put some considerable effort into matching, it was, it was just simply something that was there that didn't seem to be terribly... Uh, uh, threatening to, in the larger sense, uh, people could come up with with ideas that uh, seem pretty terrifying. Uh, but um, um, 9/11, uh, um, to a certain extent, was a wake-up call. Um, I think what what's changed is that uh, the kind of of major success of um, uh, that that flying airliners into into um, uh, um, uh, big skyscrapers achieved uh, is extremely unlikely now, given the fact that uh, um, they, uh, terrorists aren't going to get a hold of a uh, uh, airliner for a whole series of reasons, both in terms of the somewhat uh, in, inept efforts of TSA, but they're certainly uh, more impressive than they were in uh, before 2001, certainly because uh, um, I think uh, we now have things like uh, the, the uh, cockpit uh, doors are locked so nobody can get in. Um, some pilots carry weapons. Uh, a significant number of uh, U.S. armed marshals are put on uh, um, uh, both international and uh, uh, local within the U.S. flights. Uh, and to be perfectly frank, uh, uh, unless you had a bunch of... Uh, of uh, cowardly, uh, um, um, I don't know, 80-year-old, uh, 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 maybe not even cowardly, but a bunch of 80-year-old uh, old men and old women, um, any normal sort of mixture of, of, of passengers is going to have 20 or 30 uh, men and women who uh, will beat the hell out of, uh, of uh, right. any attempt to take over. Uh, a, so th- that, th- th- that's gone. Um, in fact, I think the whole massive TSA effort is a huge waste of effort uh, because uh, there were a whole bunch of things we could have done uh, and have done uh, that uh, removed the threat anyway. And so the nonsense that we go through every day and the gross incompetence, but don't get me started on that. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, well, let, 
let yeah. me ask you let me ask you about the sort of smaller scale attacks that are more likely in this piece in sort of analyzing the risks of those attacks you say that Europe is in a considerably more vulnerable position than the United States explain the analysis there well the difference is there is a, a much larger um, uh, Muslim population that um, uh, is is uh, pretty well integrated into the society. Not that the Muslim population in the U.S. Uh, uh, isn't integrated for the most part, um, but it's a far larger percentage. Um, uh, I think uh, the sort of their uh, sort of the enclaves uh, are far more difficult for the uh, um, police and security uh, uh, intelligence people, counterintelligence. Uh, uh, to pierce and to get a real sense of what's going on uh, in, inside those communities, uh, and you know, look, 99.9% um, of the Muslim population, uh, uh, unlike what Donald Trump uh, claims, are perfectly law-abiding uh, citizens, delighted to be where they are. That said, the Europeans have uh, um, access uh, to, I think, a substantially larger group of fundamentalists and while their um, you know their um, requirements in terms of possession of weapons and stuff like that are considerably higher and it's harder to get that stuff they also happen to be very uh, next to uh, some very dangerous areas in southern Europe uh, and uh, um, to the Middle East where um, getting uh, weapons is not so difficult as we've seen both in France and Belgium so um, uh, you know again it, 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 there's more danger in Europe, although, again, as I, as I think I emphasized, um, um, there are um, the number of people killed in European automobile accidents is an order of magnitude larger than the number of people uh, um, uh, killed in terrorist incidents uh, that have certainly caught uh, the added, the American. Um, uh, and uh, world attention. Okay, so let, let me ask you. Let me ask you a question off of that precise point, because there there hasn't been in the decade and a half since nine eleven. Obviously, we haven't really seen any other attacks on that scale. There were some dramatic ones, especially overseas. You had London, Madrid, Mumbai, Paris, but no, nowhere near the scale of nine eleven. And then what we've been seeing of late, stateside. Things like San Bernardino or Orlando, they're sort of basically terrorist versions of the mass shooting at a soft target, which we of course we sometimes get from domestic sources too. So, so those attacks sort of fit into a schema that Americans already have. They don't have the otherworldly quality that a 9/11 does. And not only that, but the uh, those carrying out the schemes seem to be, for, for the most part. Uh, um, largely in, incompetent compared to uh, uh, the American wackos uh, who uh, seem to be able to kill uh, um, more people than the Islamic uh, proto-terrorists. Uh. Well, so obviously this is, this is a good thing insofar as they're doing less damage. There are some people, however, who will argue that there's also a downside there, which is that it's easier for Americans to just sort of succumb to fatigue when it's a series of small and mid-sized attacks, whereas if you get something dramatic like 9-11, it's going to do more to rouse the national will and inspire a response. What's your reaction to that? Well, that's probably true, but it's a nonsensical point. I mean, uh, you know, what, 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 we want to go out and uh, hire some uh, 
uh, uh, some um, uh, ISIS guys to, to do a, a equivalent to another, another 9-11 so that we can get uh, mobilize the population. Uh, I, you know, I, um, the capacity of, if you will, the people who do media uh, and the level of ignorance in the United States uh, <laughs> about these issues just takes my breath away. Common sense is a good way to... <laughs> Uh, except as my father um, said, and he was right, uh, common sense is not common. Well, now you do walk through in this piece a, a terrorism threat that really would get the country to stand at attention and, and one that you say the critics are, are way too dismissive of. Walk us through the ISIS hacking threat. Yeah, what this requires, of course, is a combination of ISIS's ability to recruit uh, if you will, um, guys who are really, really good hackers. Uh, and, you know, again, I think here we're lucky in terms of the kinds of people we're, we're dealing with. That really, really good hackers are, for the most part, my sense is, sort of uh, lone wolves and not necessarily easily recruited to something like this. Um, but again, the issue is not just getting one hacker, but a whole group of them who can do, if you will, the kind of damage to infrastructure uh, that might be really uh, destructive to the United States. Um, but then again, of course, the problem is uh, um, uh, who would uh, get credit for uh, such uh, moves? Uh, um, and, and it's something we'll just have to watch. Um, it's clear the whole business of cybersecurity is uh, going through a real, um, uh, a real rethink, at least I hope so, in the U.S. government because we have been so appallingly bad at it. The other real nightmare scenario that you sort of run in the piece is in Pakistan. It's a pretty chilling hypothetical that you play out in this piece. Give our listeners kind of the thumbnail sketch of that. Well, the, the problem in Pakistan is that uh, it's a nuclear power. A significant number of nuclear weapons, uh, and um, uh, it is uh, conceivable that uh, the guys uh, um, that Pakistan could become uh, the kind of failed state, given the fact that there are uh, the uh, uh, the northwest part of the country is largely controlled by uh, um, uh, the Pakistani Taliban and other murderous uh, um, uh, crazies. Um, then we have a major insurgency in Baluchistan. We have a a, a civil government which is uh, never decently, and a military that is constantly overthrown uh, the civilian uh, governments uh, throughout Pakistan's history. If Pakistan were really to come apart um, and become a failed state, the way uh, um, some we've seen a number of states uh, since. Uh, in the last decade, uh, uh, become failed states. Then, um, what happens to those nuclear weapons? And um, uh, one of uh, senior general retired told me that uh, the Pakistani chief of staff told him that his greatest uh, worry, security worry, was um, uh, uh, whether he could maintain uh, the security of his nuclear weapons, his nuclear weapons, uh, and and the. Possession of a nuclear weapon by one of these groups and probably would not be uh, uh, detonated in the United States. My guess is it would be detonated uh, somewhere either in the Middle East, uh, uh, in India, 
um, which, oh, by the way, in terms of terrorist threats, uh, the, the w- worst that they could come up with would not come close to equaling the impact of an Indian-Pakistani nuclear war, which, by the way, a major war between India and Pakistan would soon go nuclear, in terms of the fallout uh, that would spread across the world. So let me close by getting you to expand on a really arresting passage in your piece. I'm going to present it here somewhat out of context because I want to give you the opportunity to flesh it out for the listeners. You write here that vis-a-vis ISIS – and I'm quoting you now – the problem is that the ignorance of Western political and military leaders of foreign cultures, history, languages other than their own, and their general unwillingness to recognize the external world for what it is has created a situation in which they are incapable of calling things by their proper name. That last phrase, there's a a Clausewitz reference. Um, That's a very damning criticism. Explain what you mean by that. Um, Very simply, uh, um, we have intelligence agencies uh, um, uh, where, uh, for example, um, the the, – the number of people in in 2009, it's probably changed um, because this was so humiliating. But the CIA, in terms of its active duty analysts, uh, only 13% of them uh, spoke uh, um, or uh, read a foreign language. The rest of them only spoke English. And and so so how can you do a sensible intelligence analysis um, when you don't understand uh, the people and the culture and the nature of the of the threat. And, you know, again, I think part of it is the very size of the bureaucracies. Uh, the NSC, which under Washington, uh, under, not Washington, under uh, um, uh, Eisenhower had uh, approximately 30 or so people, highly educated uh, um, um, people with great military experience. Um, and we got 230 people in the NSC now, uh, and some of them are, you know, um, uh, like General Allen, are really first-class people, but um, a substantial number of them don't have a clue. All right. We'll leave it there. Our guest has been Williamson Murray. You can read his essay and those by other members of Hoover's Military History Working Group by visiting us online at hoover.org forward slash strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. Wick, thanks for being with us. I'm delighted to do it. Hopefully you'll do it again in the near future. Thanks a lot. We certainly will. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Strategica, and I'm Victor Davis Hanson.